We live in a world where you can get anything you need delivered to your door thanks to DoorDash. If you don't want to do the dishes or you feel a little sick, let DoorDash bring dinner tonight. My family uses DoorDash all the time because it connects us to our favorite restaurants without us having to drive. Last night, we got some Indian food for my wife, some gumbo for me, and sushi for the kids. And everyone was happy, and we didn't have to do the dishes. The process of ordering was quick and easy, and I love DoorDash for real. So I was so happy to do this for them because I'm a customer, because I know DoorDash is your door to more. Must be over 21 to order alcohol. Alcohol available only in select markets. DoorDash, your door to more. Download the DoorDash app now to get almost anything delivered. Okay, ready? Think what you know, and it's about a time when you get yourself in a I want to it's her ratio. Okay, though. It's her ratio. Okay, though. That might be the best question I've ever been asked. <laughs> In this book, how are you arguing or how are you saying that black performativity has shaped America writ large? I mean, we were just talking about Martin Luther King Jr. The performance of King in 1963 at the March on Washington. And look, look at the internal dynamics. Martin Luther King Jr. was doing a bit of performance himself. Now, Martin Luther King Jr. usually spoke without notes. Right. That's part of the black genius tradition that from which he emerges, having a sermon, write it out, do your thing, but not using a manuscript. But on that day, he's hit. He's aiming for the fences, if we can use a baseball metaphor. So he starts off a little bit wooden for, for anybody else. It had been great. It had been like an A plus. But for King, maybe a B minus. Five score years ago. Great American in whose symbolic shadow we stand today. Sign the emancipation. Now he's five score years ago. He's he's looking at my man Abraham Lincoln, <laughs> you know, the Gettysburg Address. So he said, "Look, all these people watching. Let me get my let me get my classic American off." The black woman broke him down. Name Mahalia Jackson. Martin, tell him about the dream. Mm-hmm. Now she shouts from the side. Black woman mm-hmm. can't even get on stage. Mm-hmm. Right? She was one of the few that day. Josephine Baker is another because black women, ironically enough, were barred from a stage as black men were arguing about freedom and liberation and emancipation, but they made a gender difference. That notwithstanding, the black woman whose voice was majestic in his ear and his soul, Mahalia Jackson got him to stop reading the darn manuscript. You ain't doing your best, Holmes. Do what you do. And so he put that speech away. Despite the difficulties of today and tomorrow, I still have a dream. And what's the part of the speech you remember? The I have a dream part. What's the Mm -hmm. part he wasn't reading on? The I have a dream part. Because he freed himself within the parameters of his oratorical moment to reclaim the authentic voice through which he articulated his beliefs. Michael Eric Dyson is back with a new book called Entertaining Race about the performance and the performativity 
of blackness and black people in America and what that means. And Beyonce, he says, is the greatest entertainer in the world. But the way that we perform in all sorts of realms is what this book is about and what this conversation is about. He's a professor at Georgetown. He's a friend. He is one of the great public intellectuals of the day. Let's go. It's my man, Michael Eric Dyson on Torre Show. So I remember BET was doing a tribute to Michael Jackson and everybody was on Twitter talking and I was kind of with Questlove and Dream Hampton and we were talking about who's the heir apparent to Michael Jackson's throne as the king of pop. Mm -hmm. And we were saying it's Beyonce because Mm -hmm. she does a... The, the whole litany of things in terms of the dance and the making pop records and can do a movie and fashion. And, and people were like, she's nowhere near as good as Michael Jackson. I'm like, <laughs> it doesn't matter. She's not in comparison with Michael Jackson. She's comparison with everyone alive. Right. And, and in this book, you start out talking, talking about her as the greatest entertainer in the world and the heir of, the heir to what Michael Jackson had. Absolutely. So, you know, I'm following Teray as usual. You you know, you and Quest Love and Dream were on it. And that was not the point of that. (laughs) But but, but you're following us. But it is true. (laughs) So, yeah, man, I mean, how are you going to deny her? Uh, The talent, the ability, the singing voice. Michael's vocal height is from about eight, nine years old to about 21, 22, maybe stretching it at 23. Then he changes. Still a great voice, but it shifts. But the vocal magic that he produced, the heights at which he performed, are unquestionably at that time. You're saying, his, his, you're saying his height is Jackson 5 and off the wall. Off the wall, and, Jackson and, Five, and, and Thriller mean, and Dangerous and Bad are lesser vocal achievements. Well, they are different. Uh, okay. They're different, and but the powerhouse vocals, the stand at the mic and just blow us away. You know what he did with Thriller, Bad, and and following is equally impressive because he kind of has, as I've argued, a ver- verbal Tourette. <laughs> You know, making yeah. those sounds, those sonic hiccups and so on. But yeah. in terms of man, microphone and world, uh, what he did, you know, who's loving you? How are you going to sing that at 10 years old? Yeah. And, and when Smokey Robinson hears that, he goes, the, the boy done took my song. The same way <laughs> when, when <laughs> he's 10 years old. And the same way when Aretha Franklin is singing Respect in Otis Redding, who done a tremendous version of it, heard it was like, it's gone. I, I done lost that song. And she's my friend, but she done jacked my song. So, Be- Beyonce is an extraordinary dancer. Dancer, and but the vocal magic, the power, she's singing at her height. What is she now, 40? She's still singing at the top of her vocal register and power. And when you see her in concert, like you said, the dancing, Michael danced. I saw him. I don't know about you. I saw Michael at yeah. his height. Yeah, yeah. Michael was amazing. But he had to take a rest, go backstage, do your thing, we'll hang out. Beyonce is nonstop two and a half hours, man. 
Um, and it's pretty remarkable. And you know that old saying, is it from one of these cartoons, uh, Ernest and something, I can't think of the, the Ernest and Frank, where he says, Ginger Rogers did everything Fred Astaire mm. did, except mm-hmm. backwards and in high heels. Mm-hmm. Beyonce's getting her hair caught in the fad. She's still singing. They got to cut the tresses loose. She ain't stopped or missed the note. She walks down them stairs or when she flips and then stands back up. But the dancing, the video performance, the vocal magic, the 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 pursuit of perfection, the relentless desire to get it right. I mean, she and Michael are neck and neck right there. And I do think she occupies that throne right now. This book is about black performativity, black performance. And I see something interesting when I see uh, Beyonce and Jay-Z on stage together because she is overtly performing face, body, singing, outfit, everything. And Jay-Z is very much in the hip-hop aesthetic of I'm not performing for you. I'm just here doing me, spitting my gift, and then I'm gone. But, you know, like, and and like the previous generation, R&B generation, we are performing. We rehearse this. You know, hip-hop is like, I don't rehearse. I just roll out of bed with whatever I was wearing, you know, (laughs) kick my genius, and I'm gone. But I don't rehearse. I don't perform. I don't practice. I don't think about what I'm going to do on stage. And... Whether or not they actually do, that is the affect. Right. And and I feel like there's two very different poles of black performativity in, in encapsulated in the two of them together. Well, there's no question. But that's a performance itself, a performed nonchalance, a performed mm. unperformance, right? That's a performance of a certain sort. And it's almost as if you're Keith Sweat as an entire genre. Keith knew his register. I ain't going beyond what I can sing. This is what I do. Uh, you know, he knew what it was. He reached the, the height and he stayed within those limits. Some people would try to exceed them. He didn't. His genius was understanding, as the great philosopher Clint Eastwood said, a man's got to know his limits. And uh, hip hop knows its limits. Now, there are very few, you know, Uncle LL could, could do his swashbuckle, <laughs> literally yeah. his buckle moving. But, you know, maybe, uh, of course, you can't touch this. Uh, Mr. MC Hammer understood performance in the traditional sense. But, but, but we did not, as hip hop, as real hip we did not respect him because he's dancing. Like, not at we all. We didn't dance. respect him. Like, we Jay-Z don't respect could do two, Jay-Z could do two hours and not break a sweat because he never, he never dances in shows. He never dances, period. Or, he, well, he does a little stuff. He does his little pantom, you know, he does his little choreographed, you know, dance, which is beautiful and wonderful. Or when we see him, uh, when somebody captures uh, the family doing uh, to, to Frankie Beverly and Mays doing one of these line dances, they're like, oh, look at Jay, right? Jay understands what his, what his audience is and he understands what his limits are. So I'm not Beyonce. I'm not even trying to compete with that, bruh. I'm putting up a different register. I'm going to slay you with these lyrics. You know, I've seen Jay on stage when he says, he says, cut the music off. And then he'll start spitting some of this stuff. He says, oh, oh, I got a million of these. I, right. I, I could do this for two hours. Right. So you're right, though. You're right in the sense that the performed nonchalance of hip hop was about I'm not going to break a sweat. I'm not going to move in your way because the entire milieu, uh, the ti- the entire if you will, desire of hip hop is different than the civil rights generation's attempt to cross over, right? 
R&B was saying, I'm going to convince white folk of my humanity. Jazz, I'm going to convince white folk of my humanity by showing my black genius. Hip hop said, you're going to have to come on my side of the street. This where it is. I'm going to talk what I talk. I ain't changing my vernacular. I ain't changing what I say. And then, oh, lo and behold, the civil rights generation was taught a lesson. Oh, my Lord, you can be yourself. You can use cuss words. You can be obscene. You can say what you want to say. You can say stuff that the civil rights generation would never say. Oh, yeah, we're going to use the N word and we're going to criticize each other. But we ain't going to do it in public. They did it in public on record. Didn't care. And the world paid attention. It was a remarkable transformation. I think it was Chris Rock who says, we're trying to, we're crossing over. We're crossing over to your dollars, not your culture. So what's interesting, I think, is that Beyonce does represent that old school value added performativity that says, I'm going to slay the world. Jay-Z comes from a generation of this, what I do, this, what I am, like it or leave it. Uh, I did it my way. It's a Frank Sinatra aesthetic uh, tethered to a Jack Johnson. I don't give a damn. I'm going to slay you with the fists I have. Your culture be damned. (laughs) And hip hop in general, whether it's Lil Wayne uh, or the like, have followed suit. Now, when you mention how MC Hammer wasn't liked, you know, the same way Drake is like, oh, my God, you're singing. Uh, mm. I, is that really hip hop? Is that pop music? What the mm. hell are you doing? Come on. <laughs> yeah, I know. So, so, so. <laughs> I mean, I like many Drake songs. I also like Maxwell. I also like Sade. Yeah, right. But I'm saying, well, what I love about and I'm sure and I'll, I'll cop to this. You know, maybe it's the uh, light skinned Negro syndrome. Uh, Drake is born October 24th. I'm born October 23rd, a few years <laughs> apart to be certain. So maybe it's the over emotional yellow black Negro syndrome where we're caught in our feelings. And by God, we finally have a spokesman and we're sticking with him. <laughs> but 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 part of what Jay and others in hip hop are performing is the cool pose, right? Like I am, I am too chill to be bothered by the world as opposed to R and B, which is like, I want the world to love me. So I will overtly sing and dance for your love. That's right. That's an excellent point. But we also have to tether it to, but far more rappers are being killed and murdered than R and B stars. Now I'm not suggesting that the genre itself is creating. I'm not into that argument. No, no. I am saying, however, is that the suppression of a certain emotional attachment, a kind of cool pose. What comes with that cool pose on the street? Murder, mayhem. I'm going to perform a kind of black masculinity that will slice your throat if you look at me wrong. So you got to take the good with the bad. As Jay said, if you want to be Bobby Brown then, you got to be Bobby Brown now. So if you want to talk about cool pose and the aesthetics of cool that are articulated Uh, then you've got to have an acknowledgement that part of the price paid for that cool pose is a kind of deadly preoccupation with a sort of black masculinity that can be aestheticized on the one hand, but on the other hand is uninhibited and leads to, you know, what we've seen recently in hip hop, Young Dolph, Slim 400 just murdered Mm. in Los Angeles and Mm. on and on and on and on. I'm not, I'm just saying, what are we what are we getting in the bargain there? And what's the cost of that cool? Obama is cool pose. Obama as black president is cool pose, but it doesn't come with the auxiliary of a kind of death dealing that so much of that cool pose demands 
within the environs of hip hop. Um, I mean, to what you're saying, I remember talking to Jay-Z long time ago and he talked about, he loved his father. He idolized his father. And then his uncle, his father's brother got murdered and his father kind of shifted his attention to the street to like, let me, let me, let me be part of getting revenge here and left the family. And that broke Jay-Z's heart. And he says, I never want to be hurt like that again. So I'll never get close to anyone like that. I'll never emote. I'll never give you my heart, even if you're a woman on it. So then I can never be. So we thought, wow, the guy is so cool, but he's actually icy and locked his emotions away so he can never get hurt. And the culture of murder that you're talking about is completely related to that, that I, I, you know, I've lost, I'm traumatized. I've lost friends, fathers, uncles, you know, sisters, et cetera. And I am traumatized and I am, I am putting on this cool pose so that I don't show you in the world that I am traumatized by the death that's all around me. No, my teachers couldn't reach me and my mama couldn't beat me hard enough to match the pain of my pop not seeing me. So with Mm. that disdain in my membrane, got on my pimp game, F the world, my defense game. Exactly what you just said. And that kind of distancing, right? Uh, the, The way in which the, the aestheticized articulation of black male dispassion toward women, right? Big pimping, uh, Mm -hmm. song cry. Mm -hmm. I I can't see it coming down my eyes. if I make the song cry. You Mm -hmm. so cold that the song has to do your, you've got uh, an equivalent. You've got an emotional equivalent, a substitute. You've got a vicarious articulation of your emotional wherewithal so that the song itself is weeping in a way you can't. It's like Jesus saying, uh, yeah, Lazarus died, but I'm too cool as God to acknowledge that. So Mary wept. Mm, (laughs) No, mm, Jesus mm, wept. The mm. height of manhood is about the acknowledgement of the emotional wherewithal with which we are either blessed or cursed and the ability to acknowledge before another human being that I feel. I think Jay has certainly come to that, but he had to go through a lot of stuff to get there. We live in a world where you can get anything you need delivered to your door thanks to DoorDash. If you don't want to do the dishes or you feel a little sick, let DoorDash bring dinner tonight. My family uses DoorDash all the time because it connects us to our favorite restaurants without us having to drive. Last night, we got some Indian food for my wife, some gumbo for me, and sushi for the kids. And everyone was happy, and we didn't have to do the dishes. The process of ordering was quick and easy, and I love DoorDash for real. So I was so happy to do this for them because I'm a customer, because I know DoorDash is your door to more. Must be over 21 to order alcohol. Alcohol available only in select markets. DoorDash, your door to more. Download the DoorDash app now to get almost anything delivered. One of the people who helped inspire me to want to be in broadcasting is Oprah Winfrey. She's an inspiration for so many of us, but her daytime talk show was so incredible. And it told me that you could be black and authentic and real on TV. And that made me want to do it, too. Black Stories, Black Truths is NPR's new collection that's a celebration of blackness. Each of NPR's black voices are as direct, varied, distinct and nuanced as the black experience itself. In the Black Stories, Black Truths collection, you'll hear stories of joy, resilience, empowerment 
and how to create world-shifting things out of struggle. Every episode is a living account of what it means to be Black today, told from a unique Black perspective. Black perspectives that haven't always been centered in the telling of America's story, but now they are the story. On NPR's Black Stories, Black Truths, you'll find a collection of some of NPR's best podcast episodes celebrating the Black experience. Hear a feed of episodes from across NPR's podcasts that center Black voices. Turn on NPR today and hear a range of voices as varied, as nuanced, and as Black as we are. Stories should never be about us without us. Listen now to Black Stories, Black Truths from NPR, wherever you get your podcasts. Influencer. It's a word that gets tossed around a lot these days. There is a woman who went the distance, who broke ground as the first true influencer by living a remarkable life. Her name, Elizabeth Taylor. I'm Katy Perry. This is the story of the original influencer. This is Elizabeth the First. Elizabeth the First, the podcast, wherever you listen. You know, I think for my personal development of understanding Black performativity, mm-hmm. um, um, learning about Richard Pryor as a young person was really important because, of course, like many young people, I wanted to be funny. Um, but what I saw in the world was to be funny, you had to be a bit of a clown. And my mom from early, you know, we were in private school from early on. My mom was like, you will not be a clown among these other white people. You know, that's not what we want. But encountering Richard Pryor, my dad was playing live on the Sunset Strip for me at like age 10, just because he loved it. Was like, you can be funny without being a clown. Richard Pryor, even when he was physical, he was never the clown. And that, that era of comedians you know, including Murphy, including Rock, who were like, you know, we're not clowns, you know, right. I'm not clowning for you. And and that was a real uh, sort of breakthrough for me of like, oh, you can be funny and performative without being a clown, without being, you know, and you know, we never want to, I don't want to be a clown, but I want to be right. performative at the same time. Absolutely. You don't want to be a clown. You don't want to be a coon. <laughs> you don't right. want to be a person who surrenders the integrity of your identity. And at the expense of your self-respect, perform for a culture or an observer that in the exchange loses who you are. So a Richard Pryor, even a Bill Cosby, um, a Slappy White, a Red Fox, um, a Dick Gregory, uh, Richard Pryor, of course, um, and so many others, uh, you know, moms Mabley understood mm. we wear the mask, a kind of Paul Lawrence Dunbar affect where we manipulate the mask where, it, it, and I can't help but thinking as we are all now forced to wear the mask, it's a metaphoric identification with blackness that is rarely articulated. We have always had to wear a mask. We have a, you know, in, you know, in 95, except Negro 95, that's what it stood for. And we were, a, you know, we were forced to affect a distancing from self by, you know, putting on uh, our joy, our sorrow, our solidarity, while at the same time, the grief and the mourning uh, were there. But yeah, there was a way in which comedy became a vehicle 
to articulate deeply, deeply understood tragedies that didn't have to come out as the blues. Even the blues has comedy. The reason the blues work as tragedy is because the comic is central. Hey, lady, your husband is cheating on us. Wow. So, (laughs) (laughs) right. I mean, uh, I mean, and, and we can see this, too, in country music. You know, when when the guy's talking about how his woman cheated on him, she had a ring on her finger, but time on her hands. <laughs> so <laughs> so the, the truth is that, yeah, the comedy can be a means toward forcing the nation and forcing another culture to confront the traumas and tragedies of what we are. Jewish brothers and sisters did the same thing by inventing a, a comedic uh, expression that's that that conquered America through film and through performance. And yet at the same time, they were a very minority, small minority within the culture, but forcing society to see uh, Jewish identity in a universal package. That's the same thing that black comedy did, forcing America to understand the trauma, the tragedy and the transformation of blackness, but doing it in a way that was less threatening and menacing because Richard Pryor is coming for your jugular in the same way that a person who might be stealing your stuff from your crib will be, but he's stealing your he's stealing your defenses against who he is as a human being. He's representing a race of people that you make him the exception of, and he's showing you, I ain't no exception. I'm an extension of a genius that you fail to recognize. So yeah, in that sense, comedy was performing a whole bunch of stuff, but we weren't being clowns in the process. And in this book, you don't shy away from the fraught nature of black performance in relationship to America, the way that slaves, um, enslaved people and people who were on their way to being here were uh, forced to perform for white people. And, you know, you start the book talking about a girl who refused to perform and was murdered in an incredibly gruesome way um, for doing so. It's interesting that we have embraced performance as a gigantic part of being black America um, because it was so, what it meant to perform for white people was so, it's so fraught, so heavy um, so is. gross in the in the beginnings of us as as Americans. Yeah, no, it's a great point. I think about Hortense Spillers, the great critic, who in her reflection on the crisis of the Negro intellectual by Harold Cruz, says that the reason black people became good at performing entertainment and sports is because that's what they demanded of us. That's mm. what they made us do, and because they made us do it, we got good at it. It's not like we're born in our blood, in our DNA, but that that denies the hard work. Larry Bird has to work really hard because he's not very athletic. Michael Jordan and Kobe just got it. No, dog. Jordan was working hard in the in the weight room. Kobe was shooting a thousand jump shots per rehearsal, per performance, per, you know, getting his stuff together. Practice. (laughs) Uh, even Allen Iverson was practicing, despite what uh, was was said of him. So we ain't just born with that. We were born with a gift that we honed, that we developed. And black performance is the same way. That young black girl, as you said, in the slave ship, 1791, murdered in 1791 by a, uh, by a captain of a, a slave ship. She and another young lady taken to trial 
And it comes out there that the reason he killed her, hung her upside down, one leg with a lawn cloth barely covering her midriff. Why? Because she refused to perform. She had been infected with a venereal disease by the physician on the ship, ironically enough, but they used to dance the slaves, keep them in shape, titillate the people who are on board with them as sexual cargo and to keep them entertained. And that day she said no. And I linked that a couple, three centuries later to Naomi Osaka and Simone Biles. I am not performing for you. I will not get up and do what is expected of me. I will retain a sense of dignity and self-respect and mental health uh, that you have asked me so repeatedly to sacrifice. So yeah, from the get-go, black people have been forced to perform, and then we've taken what was necessary and what was necessary and made a virtue of it in a Kantian sense, making a virtue of necessity. Yeah, mm. we've been doing that from jump. And so we did perform. But we perform for ourselves, too, not just as enslaved people for the white master. We performed among ourselves and on our own ships. The Apollo Theater is the attempt to take back performance in our own black spaces where we could be ruthless, where we could judge each other. If you ain't getting down in the first five seconds, boo! Now, that could be hard, <laughs> heartless. The audience ruthless. is performing just as they are not a passive. They are actively performing just as the singer is. We will boo you no off doubt. the stage. Get your black butt off the stage. You must have rubbed that thing wrong. Sandman, come out here. So, and yeah, there's, we're, there's sometimes when it becomes a bit of a tug of war, like a couple people start booing and yeah. you might get, get to the next part of the song and win them over and quiet that, you know, and oh, yeah. people start Black cheering people for you. Ruthless, or you ruthless. get nervous when a couple people start booing, you get worse and now more. But now it's sinking. Now it's now. Oh, it's it's look, it was cancel culture with without a name. It was like they're going to cancel your black butt right there. No, no. Right now. OK, you convinced me. OK, you're right. You're right. All right. That second verse was better. But, see, but you, see, you remind me of Bernie Mac. What I think he first became famous for, when he was like, I ain't scared of you motherfuckers, because right. they had booed off somebody before him, right, and he right. came out with this energy like, I ain't scared of you motherfuckers, oh, yeah. you say what, and that, that, that. And they respected them. that too. They were like, okay, you backing us up, you know, <laughs> because sometimes we can be ridiculous just because we black and doing it don't mean it's right. And don't mean it's the best of blackness. Everything black ain't the best of blackness, dog. So so we make choices. And that's what the audience was saying. But the audience has to be well healed at some point, too. Like, calm down. Sometimes you're too quick to judge. You're going to miss genius because some black genius don't flower immediately or right. under that pressure. Right. right. Girls time. Now, it wasn't Apollo Theater, but Beyonce and them got 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 voted off. They didn't win. Star ultimately, Search. With Ed, Star, Star Search. Search with Ed McMahon. But guess what? <laughs> They cold and they develop. So sometimes but, uh, we need development. You know, we don't have A&R in black communities where it's like, no, you get it now or you don't do it now. I'll say this, by the way, that is a distinct difference, however, from some of these young people who make it as stars on the Internet. They don't even know what a boo is. They don't even know what no critique is. They don't even know what, oh, hell no, take that back because it ain't cooked. Put it back in the oven, dog, because that ain't ready yet. And any of any kind of critique, you hating on me. I ain't hating on you. I'm hating what you're doing with what you got because you ain't doing what your talent demands of you. So it's a real I might, be, I might be booing you because I love you and you're not ready yet. Right, right. So now, when we talk about performance and 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 style, um, and you talk about sports there. 
And yeah, I mean, we will definitely give you the triple windmill pump dunk that takes it to another level. Right. But sports is an interesting avenue, right? Because obviously the performative and the style in terms of music is the whole difference. In terms of dance, it's the whole difference. But when Tim Duncan calmly banks the ball in and walks right. up the court, it's two points just as the same way as when Vince Carter windmills right. it around his back. And right. is, so what is the real additive of, is it, is it demoralizing other team? Is it getting the fans involved in a different way? Like what is the additive there? Yeah, no, it's a great point. And it's a great point because it argues against black authenticity in a narrow realm because Tim Duncan is real, real. In fact, he from one of the islands. So he might be right. blacker than a lot of y'all, right? right? He, he came up real black, you know, <laughs> now he wasn't black. He didn't read black from the start because he was a swim star. Okay. You're outside of our parameters already, bro. Right. right. His family. Right. But he's on an island so they can swim. So that gives the lie that black people can't swim. But the reason black people can't swim ain't because it's genetically encoded. It's right. because they dogged us so bad in these public pools that right. we couldn't even get no ability to, to learn how to swim. Many right. of us, because right. we were discouraged because they're pouring bleach in it or they're going to murder you or right. kill you. So let's look at the white supremacist context within which a particular cultural ritual takes place. Having said that, you're absolutely right. There's something, to, however, about black extra. There's something about black performativity uh, and especially black masculinity at a certain level, though not exclusively. The reason the windmill dunk, the Jordan around the world, yeah. Vince Carter, is because there's an element that said that we can do what you do and then make it look good at the same time. And making it look good doesn't mean we lack substance. So they flip your argument. They say even though Vince Carter did all that, he's still scoring two points. So you're saying that it's all about style. No, it ain't. It's substance, too. The, the greatest scorer in the history of the game so far is Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. He had a sky hook. That thing was pretty. And it was also unstoppable. He was performing. Uh, Kobe Bryant, Michael Jordan. So the converse of that argument is true, too. Even though it's style, it has substance. And black style is often seen as contradistinctions, a contradistinct to uh, substance. No, it ain't. It's still tremendous style. Now, if you get into a, a, a kind of uh, flow where only the extraordinary, only the overperformed, only uh, the dramatic uh, is, is black or substantive is ridiculous because then you got a Tim Duncan who goes work a day, work pail in hand, lunch pail in hand. Uh, I'm going to give you these two points. My fundamentals are so strong. I can bank this, right? I can do a bank shot. People don't even know how. Maybe Russ, Russell Westbrook right now is doing a bank shot. Very few people have mastered uh, the bank shot right now. Uh, Tim Duncan did that. So the beauty of Tim Duncan is that he was subversive in a black man's game that was dominated by black stylistic excursions into uh, all kinds of phantasmagorical African identities and deities. Mm. He was mm. just on the ground every day doing the fundamental stuff, the work uh, that a Larry Bird or Bob, well, Bob Cousy was more stylistic, but a so-called fundamental white man's game, he took that and then energized it with a kind of black genius uh, for the ability to wed style and substance, but it was a cool, dispassionate substance. If he was a rapper, Tim Duncan would be Jay-Z, conversational, right. 
Laid I, back. You know, like I don't do like a Buster Rhymes and I don't do all this. But if you break down my lines, if you break down what Tim Duncan did, he got five rings, bruh. He's up there with Magic and Kobe. But but he's he's definitely laid back. Way my, laid understa- back. my understanding of Tim Duncan is taken to another level listening to Kevin Garnett talk about Tim Duncan and the way that he would trash talk. And right. Kevin is talking to you in like right. whole sentences and paragraphs and tell you what he's going to do to you. Right. T- Kevin's like, Tim, don't talk in sen- He just gives you little phrase. Got you almost <laughs> nice try. <laughs> like just li- so it's just very cool. Oh, and laid back, like, yeah. You almost. <laughs> Right. You know, my my game is doing my talking, dog, because I hear you talking, but I don't hear nothing happening. The bodies keep, as, as, as Biggie said, the bodies keep piling up. So, so, so I don't know what you're saying, but what I'm doing is murdering you out here. But part of what we're saying is that, that, that there's there's kind of two, at least two different kinds of black style. You see, I make this look easy. Right. And I'm working very hard at this. And you're like, wow, like, look how hard he's working at this. And he still makes it look beautiful. And, right. you know, you see that, in, you know, in, in, in all sorts of performances. There's no question about that. And one of the reasons that black people do that is because we were accused of being lazy and stupid and dumb mm. and disinclined to industry and having no diligence and ha- not being assiduous and really you know, concentrated on what we do. So we got to perform our work. We were making it look so easy. We out here in the slave, you know, uh, field and we and we doing the work and you ain't giving us no credit for it. Now, of course, we break in the arms and legs of the animals so that we can't work <laughs> so that the ones that we're supposed to work with, are done. We, we out here breaking the holes for the leg. We just, I don't know what happened. So so we're, we're performing kind of dumbness. We ain't lazy. We smart. We work in real sharp to not do anything beyond what we are called upon to do. And we don't want to be coerced into exceeding our limits for your advantage. So there's something passed along to us that says, now I'm going to overcome. I'm going to get on the field. And when I make that touchdown, I'm going to let you know what I did. I'm going because you failed to acknowledge me as a human being. Part of that is compensatory. What does eating healthy mean to you? Whatever your eating goals, Thrive Market is the best place to get all your groceries and household essentials. And getting Thrive shipped to your door is like having a great supermarket right outside your house. I love that Thrive Market carries brands with the highest quality ingredients and ethical sourcing methods. Whether you're looking for organic kid snacks or low sugar alternatives or gluten-free essentials, Thrive Market's got it and their site lets you curate your shopping experience quickly. And as a Thrive member, I save on every order, usually about 30%, which of course I love. And when you join, you help a family in need with the membership matching program. Join in on the savings with Thrive Market today and get 30% off your first order plus a $60 gift for free. Go to thrivemarket.com slash for 30% off your first order plus that free $60 gift. That's Thrive, T-H-R-I-V-E Market. Dot com slash Toray. Thrivemarket.com slash Toray. On March 16, 2000, two sheriff's deputies were shot in Atlanta. Jamil Alamin, a Muslim leader and former black power activist, was convicted. But the evidence was shaky, and the whole truth didn't come out during the trial. 
My name is Mosi Secret, and when I started investigating this case in my hometown, I uncovered a dark truth about America. From Tinderfoot TV, Campside Media, and iHeart Podcasts, Radical is available now. Listen to the new podcast, Radical, for free on the iHeart Radio app or wherever you get your podcasts. It is. Part of that, it makes up for the lack of recognition in other arenas. And as we know, the burden on black entertainers and sports stars is what James Baldwin called the burden of representation. Mm. It is the burden of the race. You know, um, if Denzel goes down, that means a lot different. That, that means a whole different thing than if Brad Pitt goes down. Because Brad you, Pitt ain't got to represent the race of white men in the same way that Denzel represents his race as a black man. We have restricted this conversation to talking about celebrity right. performance, but there is an everyday performativity Absolutely. that Absolutely. happens throughout our community in the way that we wear our hair, in the very loud and stylish way that we might dress, in the way that we use language, right. in the way that we greet each other with the daps and the hand right. high fives and these sort of things. And so, I mean, there is a performativity in the approach to life that's, that you see just every day on the street. There's no question about that. That's why I talk about so much in my book, the head nod, you know, mm. brother, you know, and what kind of head nod it is, making distinctions among varieties of head nods, <clears throat> the dap, the handshake, you know, even with Key and Peele, when they had Obama, like, hey, how are you? Fine, shaking a hand to the coach and the next one. Hey, mm-hmm. how are you? Get to the mm-hmm. brother. So, so <laughs> there is a performativity, right? There's a performativity. And the reason the everyday is so critical and crucial is because it's not just about celebrity. It's not just about fame. Those people who are famous come from a community. And the beauty of it is they are the overflow. They are the most dramatic public articulation of what we do every day. So when you want to like them, you're making an argument for liking us. Where you think, where you think LaMelo Ball got that from? His mm-hmm. daddy is the biggest performer as he is. Now he mm-hmm. got a big mouth and he run his mouth and you say mm-hmm. what? Richard Williams. Mm-hmm. What do you think Venus and Serena? This is why I love the, the Will Smith movie, despite people saying, well, it's not feminist enough because it's a black, black patriarch. Stop it with that. That's they daddy. He taught them what they have taken as women to move forward uh, the game of tennis and and arguably to become two of the greatest and Serena, the greatest tennis player bar ever. gender yeah. that we've ever seen. Well, I, so, I, I, you know, Richard, the Richard. Uh, OK, let's dive in for one second. The Richard in King Richard is perhaps the greatest black father that Hollywood has ever given us. He loves his children. He will fight gang members for them. He will fight Nike for them. He is their champion 110%. He's constantly telling them, you can do anything. And not just the tennis playing sisters, but you're going to be a doctor. You're going to be a lawyer. He's building everybody up with self-esteem. He's an amazing black dad. Now, why in this film... Or a scene, the wife is right. all but erased 
I don't appreciate. She in real life is a critical part of why these sisters got to the height that they got to. There is no and, question. And, and the I character the spends the movie basically saying, are we not partners? And he lies and says, yes, right. when we could have spent a little extra time and let her be an actual partner. Why is she not portrayed as the actual partner that she is? And that's not even to take a feminist point of view, but just to say, Richard did not do this all alone, but King Richard would have you think that he did it all alone. Right. Well, of course, that's that's anybody's like, yeah, yeah, I, I did that. You know, share. Say we, mister. You know, look, pronoun, pronomial uh, projection ain't something that's exclusive to black people. Ah, ah, ah. You know, we ain't saying we. That's American. That shows how American he is. You know, you rip off the native people. Ah, discovered America. You rip off black people. Ah, built this nation. Ah, ah. Yeah, okay. Slow down with that, homie. So, yeah, he's American in that sense. That ain't black. That's American. But having said that, it's to the credit of the actress, the tremendous actress who plays Oracine, right? Uh, Anjanou Ellis. Yes. You know, that she insisted we're going to get this woman some credit, too, for what she did. So your critique is right on. But it wouldn't have been that. It wouldn't have been even the, the degree to which we saw her fight back. Don't ever do this to my daughters. Don't it to my children. Don't you have stood up to him and insisted sure. that and, and showed her working with the, ten, you know, with uh, Venus and Serena as well. So you're yeah. right. It could have been more. Absolutely. No film was perfect. But that's a great, great point. But but at the end of the day. On the everyday level, black people have had to perform in so many arenas, roles and, and the like, which is why. I'm critical of some of the younger people, and I understand what they mean when they say performativity. Slow down with, with using performativity as only a negative, as only pejorative, you know, performative allyship, performative identification, performative wokeness and all that. I get it because there is a, a certain element where it's a mere performance on the outside without having the internal dimensions of the moral and ethical content that it should bear. I get it. I, I appreciate it. But to really reduce the word performative to something pejorative is problematic. It's, Martin Luther it, King Jr. was performing in Birmingham, Alabama, when he got this buffoon sure. named uh, Bull Connor to unleash those water hoses and police dogs on black people. John Lewis was performing. Uh, you know, Ella Baker was performing. Fannie Lou Hammer was performing when she testified before, you know, the DNC. So let's not reduce performativity to the pejorative, well, that's you all know, I would say. No, 100%. When when I was doing my book about blackness, Who's Afraid of Post-Blackness, which right. you wrote the introduction to, the yes, forward sir. to, um, yeah. one of the things that I consistently saw is when I talked to uh, academics about the performance of blackness, they would say, yes, absolutely, personality is a performance. That's not a pejorative. And right. when you talk to people outside of the academy, they would be triggered or offended by that. Well, I'm not performing my personality. Right, right. I just am. Of course right. you're performing. And you see that in code switching, right? Yeah. Which I think nowadays we try to do that less in terms of being more and more unapologetically black. Right. But I think we understand there's different audiences and you act differently. And that's not disrespecting yourself. When you are with your grandmother, you have one form of your personality. When you're with your young niece, yeah, you behave nobody. differently. Yeah, when these you're Negroes talking your... about keeping it real all the time are crazy to me. I mean, I'm sorry. I wish I had a better, you know, highfalutin <laughs> term. Negro, please. Like, you know, like, respectability politics. Well, yeah, because some people should be respected. 
Right now, I'm now I'm look. I, my whole career has been spent against respectability. So please don't sure. holler at me because no. I've been there and done that and defined it on the cutting edge. I was spitting hip hop lyrics in the academy when they were, what I never right. will. 1993 at Princeton, three people got a standing ovation at the the Race Matters conference: Stuart Hall, Tony Morrison, and Michael Eric Dyson. But I was <laughs> criticized. Is he really bringing together Ralph Allison and Snoopy Dog Dog? Yeah, and these were Negroes saying that. Falling back on that axe with a hell of a gangsterly. I was doing it, dog. So please don't holler at me. I was doing it when it wasn't a thing. Before right. it was a thing. Before True. it was acceptable, and everybody's doing it now. Having said that, the reason our foreparents, ancestors, and some Negroes we know were performing respectability politics is because they understood they had to meet the demands of a white culture that was unforgiving of their humanity. So we know that Claudette Colvin should have been the first one before Rosa Parks because Claudette Colvin was supposedly, now there's been a lot of argument about it, whether or not she was cursing or not, that she was pregnant and so on and so forth. But what we understood is white folk gonna make an issue out of you being pregnant or you cussing. And they shouldn't because they cuss and they get pregnant too. But we knew the game was rigged. So black people who know the game is rigged perform within those limits, and we still do. So please, a a code switching is still a critical tool of survival for black people in America. No, code switching is an important tool. It just respects that you understand who you're talking to. And when I see you and I say, yo, what up, my nigga, you understand right. where that comes from. When I dap right. you up, you understand that's love, that shared community. Right. Uh, you know, you know, Jim Johnson, you right. know, does not understand that. I should right. be I should be interacting with him a little bit differently. Hi, right? Jim, how and, are you? Fine. How are you? Yeah. <laughs> right. I told myself, look, Negro, when you go to work, sell out as much as you can. What? Oh, my God. Yes. Because you trying I mean, to get a paycheck. You trying to both, get a paycheck. We both know people who go into places like the New Yorker, which are highly white or wherever, and black it up, which is its own sort of code switch and performance. And the white people are won over by like, oh, here's my black friend. So right. that is also a performance we should should avoid. Let's right. Let's acknowledge it too. Don't like because then when another and that's why those kind of Negroes don't want another Negro to come because oh come on that Negro ain't like you. Come you on. say you the only one. You the one who are you you exclusively define it. But here's a variety of blackness that is competing with yours. That now we have <laughs> options. So yeah, you always want to be the only Negro in the room because you want to define what the blackness is for the white folk who are consuming it. But yes, no code switching is not inherently no. bad. Absolutely it is understanding not. the performance that is necessary for the audience that is in front of you. And now, and we see when it doesn't work. Like Brian Kelly, coach of LSU now. Trying to fake like he's a Southern white boy. I say to y'all out here today, dude, you ain't got no Southern accent. You tripping. You lying. Right? So there is a way in which you can mess it up. Now, I know there's not blackness, but here's an example of an appropriation. Another word we use when we talk about performance, right? Mm-hmm. It used to be Bruno Mars. They were worried about it. Not Bruno Mars ain't got no problem. He with Silk Sonic, Anderson Pack. Oh, he must be real with it. Because, <laughs> oh, can this this can this Asian young man actually perform a Michael Jackson tonality? Is he not appropriating? Well, maybe he appreciated the culture so deep he was imbibe, imbibing that culture, reared in that culture, and understands as a Filipino-American where his roots are in de- indeed laid down. So it's a complicated 
It's a complicated negotiation, but there's no question that there's no inherent vice to the ability of black people to understand where they at. Martin Luther King Jr. preaching a sermon. I ain't going nowhere. Martin Luther King Jr. before a black church, but Martin Luther Jr. before America. Down in Alabama with its vicious racist, with its governor having his lips dripping with the words of interposition and nullification. Same dude, same preacher. I ain't going nowhere. Interposition and nullification. He understands his audience. audience. He understands to whom he's speaking, and he mm-hmm. understands the necessity of communication. And that's what blackness at its best does. I can perform in an authentic way. Just because I'm performing doesn't mean it's inauthentic. Right. Not the notion that performance is inauthentic misunderstands how people are performing every day. Mm. So how so so in this book, how are you arguing or how are you saying that black performativity has shaped America writ large? I mean, we were just talking about Martin Luther King Jr. The performance of King in 1963 at the March on Washington. And look, look at the internal dynamics. Martin Luther King Jr. was doing a little bit of performance himself. Now, Martin Luther King Jr. usually spoke without notes, right? That's part of the black genius tradition that from which he emerges, having a sermon, write it out, do your thing, but not using a manuscript. But on that day, he's hit, he's aiming for the fences, if we can use a baseball metaphor. So he starts off a little bit wooden for, for anybody else. It'd have been great. It'd have been at like an A plus, but for King, maybe a B minus. Five score years ago, great American in whose symbolic shadow we stand today, signed the emancipation. Now, he's five score years ago. He's he's looking at my man, Abraham Lincoln, <laughs> you know, the Gettysburg address. So he's saying, look, all these people watching. Let me get my let me get my classic American off. The black woman broke him down. Name Mahalia Jackson. Martin, tell him about the dream. Mm-hmm. Now she shouts from the side, black woman, mm-hmm. can't even get on stage. Mm-hmm. Right? She was one of the few that day. Josephine Baker is another because black women, ironically enough, were barred from a stage as black men were arguing about freedom and liberation and emancipation, but they made a gender difference. That notwithstanding, the black woman whose voice was majestic in his ear and his soul, Mahalia Jackson, Got him to stop reading the darn manuscript. You ain't doing your best, Holmes. Do what you do. And so he put that speech away. Despite the difficulties of today and tomorrow, I still have a dream. And what's the part of the speech you remember? The I have a dream part. What's the Mm -hmm. part he wasn't reading on? The I have a dream part. Because he freed himself within the parameters of his oratorical moment to reclaim the authentic voice through which he articulated his beliefs. Now, so what I'm saying to you is that that was a performance of blackness, of American identity that reshaped American democracy. Fannie Lou Hamer reshaping American democracy, making us understand Ralph Ellison, Jay-Z, Beyonce, Michael Jackson, Prince, Miles Davis, Toni Morrison. These are figures, literateurs, writers. James Baldwin has reshaped America in the crucible of his eloquence. And so these figures are reshaping what it means to be American, testing the limits. Jack Johnson, you know, the man act and on stage what he's doing. Joe Lewis testing the limits of pugilism in defense of American identity, because it was not just Joe Lewis against Max Schmeling. 
It was democracy versus fascism, democracy versus Nazism. So inevitably, black performance became an arena within which we articulated noble ideals of American democracy that not only helped black people become integrated into the larger circle of America, it helped America reclaim its most authentic voice. That's what I mean. Mm. I mean, there's so many areas where we are the spice of the country, where we are the extra mustard that makes the hot dog really interesting and valuable and, and, and just tastes good. And I, and, and and talk about these people you're referencing as well as just, like we said, the handshakes, the, the verbal, uh, you know, way that we approach the language, you know, just the way that we walk those, the way that we dunk all these sorts of things, the way that we, so, so what is the, uh, what is the, impact on America you think of just our everyday style that we have brought to this country and to this world. I mean, you just said it so beautifully. I mean, I mean, Ralph Ellison said, what would America be without the Negro? Mm-mm. Think about that. Mm-mm. How bland, how boring. Even Martin Luther King It would Jr. be Kansas. I mean, <laughs> yeah. and Thomas Frank wrote a beautiful book about Kansas, but God What's dang, the matter I mean, with Kansas? I mean, right. And, and the thing is, Dorothy was great. Toto, <laughs> I mean, if it was all Judy Garland in the red shoes, it would be great because that's a parable about the limits of American autonomy. Great. But at the same time, at the end of the day, what would this nation be? It would be mayonnaise. It would not be miracle dressing. And miracle dressing is favored by Negroes. So, you know, <laughs> pull us up in there. Pull us up in there, dog. You know, and we made the hot dog, too. Right. We helped produce the daggum thing. So here's the thing. That without black people, the nation wouldn't be able to test the limits and durability of its ideals. It wouldn't be able to articulate countervailing evidence that they had to overcome in order to make it better. Oh, black people are not just saying stuff to to dog the nation. We're saying it to make it better. James Baldwin said, I love America more than any nation on earth. I reserve, therefore, the right to perpetually criticize her. Hell yeah. So that kind of internal critique that is generated among African people in America is extremely powerful and necessary. So we have our own Gunnar Myrtles. You know, Gunnar Myrtle came in from as a Swedish economist and came over here and wrote the book, The American Dilemma. Hortense Spiller says, why are we why are we calling in Gunnar Myrtle when we already got Du Bois? We got somebody mm. here doing that work, dog. Look, I'm reminded. I don't know if it's apocryphal or not. During the uh, Harlem Renaissance, you know. Uh, a group of people get together, the well-heeled Negroes and, and, and other people that go to, uh, you know, Europe. We want to learn the basis for great classical music and the most edifying conception of artistic expression. And they were like, but you got Louis Armstrong and Duke Ellington. What are you coming over here for? You got the people. So, <laughs> so the thing is, is that we possess the metric measure, the metronome, uh, the instinct, the intuition, the gravy, the gusto, the grit and grace of what it means to be American. And when I said even that King speech where outside of America, outside of the black community, they might have said ah, that ain't his best speech until he got to the to the dream part. But think about this. What about if a white guy had gotten up and said five score years ago? A great American in whose symbolic shadow we stand today signed the Emancipation Proclamation. 
when King is five score, yeah, even just as you know, as Jay Z said, just the sound of his voice makes it a hit. Talking about Ron yeah. Isley, just yeah. the sound of his voice, Doctor King. I'm reading the sack of potato chips right here. And I'm telling you, there's no caffeine in Coke today. <laughs> Just saying that, dog. Just saying it like that. Uh, I don't. I don't smoke cigarettes with all of that menthol. <laughs> so there's something about the style and delivery. Aretha Franklin singing. Just what would be the ingredients of Hershey chocolate bar is going to be off the chain. I, I mean, you know, I just, I mean, you know, you think about just Richard Pryor or Dave Chappelle reading the phone book would me be, it, you know, they Come would on. be. But you also make me think about the Wizard of Oz and the Wiz, right? And my favorite things, Judy, uh, was that Judy Garland? Yeah, Judy and, Garland. And John Coltrane, my favorite things, and how we get our hands on these sorts of cultural things that they prize and add the blackness to it. Man. And it's, it's, it's just so much more powerful and interesting. And add the Americanness to it. The, the things y'all say y'all interested in, we be doing like you say, you're into what's more democratic than jazz. Who can mm. play, who can step up to the plate? What's more democratic than a cipher? Yo, uh, uh, Oh, Oh no. She, I don't know what her name is, but she murdered that homeboy. Right. So so ciphers, you know, woodsheds, Apollo theaters, we are testing the limits of American democracy. What you claim that you represent, we actually live out. And so in that sense, we have made America a better nation. And without us, the full arc of American glory could never be revealed. Well, one last thing you in the book, you start talking about George Floyd mm-hmm. And the performance there, what do you mean by that part? Well, I mean, like literally George Floyd is performing Black Death before an international audience. And and think about it, even in parts, as I argue in in my uh, book, not necessarily in that essay, in my book, Long Time Coming, look at the parallels between Jesus's seven last words from the cross and George Floyd. You know? Uh, Jesus is saying, I thirst. George Floyd literally say, I'm thirsty. I do a parallel. And the seven last sayings of Jesus from the cross are mimicked by George Floyd. Mama, when Jesus says, behold, son, behold thy mother, mother, behold thy son. Mama, mama. That's George Floyd is, is, is measuring, mimicking, and paralleling Jesus at that point. He's performing black mortality, right? It's black obituary on the slide. And George Floyd is performing for the world to see black vulnerability in the face of white supremacy. The refusal of a sadistic white cop to acknowledge the humanity of black people. He's making it. He's reducing it to a skirmish. A mortal skirmish between a white knee and a black neck. And in that performance, we saw writ large the entire escapade of white supremacy in in contrast to and in conflict with black humanity and the demand and desire to be treated with dignity and respect. So to me, that was a hell of a performance and literally capturing it. Darnella Frazier, the, the kind of cinematographer of black death, because these these black films, these black videos that are produced are black snuff films. Yeah. The last moments of black 
death captured. I can't breathe. I can't breathe. I can't breathe before he expires. Eric Garner, George Floyd, Walter Scott running down mm-hmm. in Louisiana, down in uh, uh, yeah. South Carolina. Yeah. So we've seen this. And these things are performance in the most classic sense. I, I've been word. wondering this, that that I think almost all black people have about 20 of these sort of snuff films in our short-term memory that we could call yeah. up at any time. And I could just right. say the names that we would all see Philando, right. Tamir, right. et cetera, right. et cetera. Right. What is it doing to us that we have all these, vi- I mean, like, we always knew these things were happening, but right. they were written stories or heard things. But now we have all these videos in our mind seeing black death. What is that doing to us that we are all walking around with this in our short term memory? Yeah, that's a great question. It's both traumatic and transformative. It's both vile and vindicating. I mean, at some point we, we told you, that's what, but, but we've been telling you this, right? So in one sense, Thank God, as tragic as that is, as traumatic as that, thank God it was captured so you can see we weren't lying. To me, that's why so many white, when people say, why did so many white people get involved with the George Floyd and not before? I'll I'll tell you why my theory. First of all, it's during a pandemic. So most of us who could afford to be at home are at home. Watching our screens even more than usual, than normal. What? What the hell? Did y'all see it? So we're passing it around, right? It went viral much more quickly because we're watching our screens for everything. The, the very screens that we were denouncing two weeks before the pandemic, old people like me, get off that damn, get off my lawn, get off that phone. Talk to me as a human being. Now we depend upon the very thing we say get off of for our humanity. People talking to their priests and their doctors and their loved ones for the last time on a, on a screen. So the screen became very intimate and personal. White people saw it for the first time going like, damn, okay, they, they weren't lying, were they? Secondly, there were no more excuses. You know, the usual excuses cops make. Oh, he was menacing. He mm. was threatening me. He was going to kill me. But my own eyes, white people go, no, 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 no. We saw it. The man is down there begging you to get off of him. He's not threatening you. He ain't threatening you at all. So no more li- white people were like, we ain't got no more excuses like like that. Like, what are you going to do with that? So they flood the streets because of the pandemic, because of the screens, because of understanding that black people weren't lying. And at the same time, they identified with that vulnerability because their bodies were under assault by a by a vicious virus that they didn't unleash on the world. And yet they were victims of it in the same way white supremacy was doing us. So I think all that got together, ganged up on them and pushed many of them. I think uh, also that as opposed to the other moments which were quicker, this one was very long. It was a performance. So it, so it weighed on your mind and your soul in a different way because There's, it lasts eight, nine you know, minutes as opposed to, you know, Walter Scott is like five boom, seconds. Boom, boom. Tamir Rice is like three right. seconds. Ahmaud you know, Arbery is longer. So we saw that. That's true. And yeah, but it's blurry. This was close and it's up, long, close, intimate, long and vicious. And, you know, I, I understand when 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 black people say, look, you know, I don't want, you know, out of the self-care movement and trigger warnings. I was in class. I'm not going to be proud of this, but I did do it. It is what real to me. 
So I'm in class one day. I'm about to show Kendrick Lamar, you know, because I'm doing a Kendrick class and I'm about to show the we're going to be all right. And, you know, up on the pole where the cop acts like he's shooting the kid. And my T.A. says, Dr. Dyson, are we going to issue a trigger warning? So I said, yeah, here's my trigger warning. The cop got a gun. He got a trigger and he's going to shoot black people. Right now, they laughed a little bit and understood it. But here's my point, too. If you have the privilege to say, I don't want to traumatize myself, and I understand it, I understand why. The, George Floyd didn't have that, that privilege. Ahmaud Arbery didn't have that privilege. The least we can do mm. is look at what they have to suffer because you, as a black person now, know I'm self-protecting, I'm, and I get it. You don't want to reduce, you don't want to look at it every day, but God dang it, look at it once or twice to make sure you understood what the trauma and tragedy of this particular person was. And if you have black privilege enough to deflect the seeing of that, because as Elizabeth Alexander says uh, about Rodney King, can we unsee this? Maybe not. But if they couldn't forget unseeing it, they can't unlive it. The Mm. bullet is still lodged in their bodies, the chokehold on their necks, the knee squeezing the life. So for me, I got to say toughen up a little bit to a younger black generation, even as they have taught us about Mm self-care. We ought to teach them about the toughness of a culture that regardless went forth. Now, I love and respect and talked favorably in my book about Naomi Osaka and Simone Biles. Mm -hmm. But I also got to talk about Venus and Serena Williams. Mm. They were up against a lot more than a lot of these younger people are up against like real assaults where and threats and hatred and racism, and they stood up. So while we're talking about self-care, which is critical, while we're talking about self-interest, which is critical, don't overlook those who, despite their refusal to talk about that, soldiered on anyhow. I'm not saying it's an either-or. I'm saying let's appreciate the specific historical recognition of Black fight against black trauma in ways that didn't privilege self-care. Because if Martin Luther King Jr. had privileged self-care, he might not have died for us in the process. Mm. It's a struggle that we must argue about, but I don't think it's so simple and and as clean cut as either you're going to do it or you ain't. It's far more complicated. Thank you so much to Professor Dyson for a great interview. And thanks to you for listening. Torre Show gives you fuel to power your dreams because you can use your dreams like a rocket ship to blast you into a life you never imagined. You can make your dreams a reality and this show can help. You can find me on Twitter at Torre and on Instagram at Torre Show. Torre Show is written by me, Torre, and produced by Jackie Garifano. Our editors, Ryan Woodhall. Our photographers are Chuck Marcus and Shanta Covington and Nick Carp. Our booker is Claudia Jean. And we're distributed by DCP Entertainment. And we will be back on Wednesday with more amazing guests because the man can't shut us down. We live in a world where you can get anything you need delivered to your door thanks to DoorDash. If you don't want to do the dishes or you feel a little sick, let DoorDash bring dinner tonight. My family uses DoorDash 
all the time because it connects us to our favorite restaurants without us having to drive. Last night, we got some Indian food for my wife, some gumbo for me, and sushi for the kids. And everyone was happy. And we didn't have to do the dishes. The process of ordering was quick and easy. And I love DoorDash for real. So I was so happy to do this for them because I'm a customer. Because I know DoorDash is your door to more. Must be over 21 to order alcohol. Alcohol available only in select markets. DoorDash, your door to more. Download the DoorDash app now to get almost anything delivered.